Before we begin this episode, I just wanted to let you all know that we had audio issues from the start, largely because we couldn't get uh, Rich's computer to operate on Skype properly. Uh, there was a st really bad thunderstorm rolling into my area. Uh, internet connection was hazy. Rich's audio kind of goes wonky here and there, but... This is a great episode. Don't pass it up. Yes, it's the longest episode of Our Strange Skies that I hope we will do, but don't pass this one up, folks. This is a great episode, so enjoy the show. What's up, Euphonauts? Today we're running through the abduction phenomenon. We're gonna go, we're gonna run through it, tell you all about it, all of its nooks and crannies, and I have a special guest with me for that today. He is Man Myth Legend on over on the Astonishing Legends podcast, Rich Haddam. Rich, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing good, Rob. How are you? <laughs> Fantastic, man. So we've had this episode kind of we've, we've been going back and forth for like a over a month now um because i really right. wanted to have you on to talk about to give it just like an overview of the abduction phenomenon with me because you you generally you have good insights on it so uh what better person than rich haddam to come in and and offer some great insight into a really bizarre phenomenon man yeah, it seemed like a really great idea a month ago. <laughs> it's gonna be okay, man. We're gonna get through it. We're gonna we're gonna get through it. I'm I, I promise. Wait, you. does this does this count for like ninety percent of my grade? Oh yeah, or yeah. And I mean, the realistically, I've already completed this semester also count because I think uh, you know I was out late partying with the other frat guys, <laughs> and that and that Spanish final really killed me. So. Don't worry, man. It's pass fail, and and I know the instructor, so I think you'll I think you'll be okay. <laughs> oh, man, I love pass fail. I never did. I never took advantage of pass fail. You know, set the bar low, man. <laughs> oh. Exactly, exactly. You know, uh, just barely. That's all. That's it. Nothing. Nothing too big. <laughs> so, what we're gonna do is we're gonna run through the characteristics of what kind of makes an abductee an abductee, uh, kind of the, the, the common linking factors, and, and really there won't be many, but we'll, we'll highlight a few. We're going to be talking about the psychological factors that play into this, and at times the physical factors, and we'll even highlight the procedure with which people are abducted. So it's going to be, it's going to be a bumpy ride, folks. It's going to be a fun one, though. It's going to be a fun one. <laughs> so the first thing that we're going to do, yeah, we're going to highlight kind of the characteristics of abductees. And, and uh, the first thing is uh, <clears throat> the people that this occurs to, there is no real common 
characteristics among the actual people that are abducted. They are abducted among no. they're amongst a, a, a vast swath of races, uh, ages, vocations. Sometimes people are abducted once and they're never abducted again, and it's a right place, right time situation. But in generally, no, there are no common. There's really no common type of person that is in in the sense of, uh, yeah, race and and um, gender really. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I I found the same thing except for I didn't find like in the books that I read uh, and and. Uh, t- today, I'll, I'll be quoting from Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind by C.D.B. <laughs> Bryan. And, to, and offer play-by-play. Play. He, he just held it up for you folks. <laughs> <laughs> the Communion Letters by Whitley and Ann Streber. And then, uh, then the, the, the hardback of The Supernatural by uh, Jeffrey Kripal and Whitley Streber. And here's the thing, though. I actually had a difficult time... Well, in, in, I'll tell you this. In the Communion Letters... There is no identifying material provided within the letter. Someone says, I was born in this year, and I'm a female, and I married a guy, and then we had a male child or something. Otherwise, you're just sort of hearing a story and kind of deducing what the person might be. But it was very unclear what the racial background was. And even in the C.D.B. Bryan book, for some reason in my mind... I I was not picturing a diverse crowd for some reason. Everyone he talked to appeared to be uh, Caucasian Americans, uh, male and female. But I, in terms of names, I wasn't getting you know uh, you know Japanese names or you know Middle Eastern names or or even Hispanic names. And I'm really curious. I know that information's out there, but this house is so big in terms of figuring out who's experiencing what on the surface of the earth that I didn't get to all those rooms. And you and I talked about that a little bit, like searching out specific kinds of people who may or may not have had experiences, right? Yeah, and that is difficult to nail down, especially, you know, when you talk about the C.D.B. Bryan book, most of that takes place at a conference at MIT. So it's like... right. In the north, in the northeast, based on people who could physically make it to that location, so they're, you know, I, I'm not sure they're flying in from, you know, uh, yeah, and that that's definitely a, a difficult. Uh, there may be more common traits among these people, but yeah, it's just really hard to actually find a lot of data nailing down the who's who and and and. Are there any commonalities just amongst those things? But I think if you had found a survey of just worldwide, it would be it has to be so vast and and, you know giant that you can't really pin it down. Well, and that's I think that's one of the that's one of the problems. Well, and and I say it's a problem again. it, It might just be you know a Google search I haven't done yet. But you know, Communion was written 30 years ago and was a worldwide bestseller. I have to assume it was sold in every country on Earth. Right. And and I have to assume, okay, so this book, The Communion Letters, these are letters that came from people in America. And apparently Whitley and Ann Streber received hundreds of thousands of letters from people who, upon reading that book, were then moved to write to them to say, 
wow, I've had experiences just like that. Or I've had other weird experiences that just touch on one element. Like one page in your book, you mentioned this one weird thing. Now let I'm going to use that as a jumping off point to explain a strange story in my own experience that, frankly, when the dust settles, looks nothing like what Whitley experienced. They, they're, they're very, very different. In fact, that book, there's a wide range. I mean, I, I mean you, could, you could begin you know, putting those in stacks of these are fairy encounters, these are ghost encounters, this feels like an NDE. I mean, they're, they're very strange. I mean, the saying that that book is about alien abductions. In fact, I'm wondering if we shouldn't even just get rid of the word alien and just say people who have had these interactions with some sort of intelligent energy. That might be a, a smarter way to go about it because it does encompass a wide swath of different phenomena from other parts that people keep separated. Like all of the 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 spiritual and paranormal stuff, it's always kept separate. But realistically, there's yeah. a lot of crossing points here and there, and there are definitely some other ones that we're gonna touch on um but the the nde stuff the near-death experience stuff it definitely plays bigger part in it it's, it's one of the more common features of long-term abduction scenarios because especially with whitley streber and more recently uh, with the love and saucers documentary uh, a lot of people oh, yeah. may, a lot of people may not realize it but this woman in Farah yutsu ended up Back in, I believe, 2009, she scanned all of his artwork that he had at the time, which was, I think, over like 100 or so paintings. And a lot of them you see in the documentary, but there are a few that really kind of stand out, and one in particular. And it's kind of an unremarkable painting in that it's an image of David, and he's in this room. And there's like this large circle in the wall, which I assume to be some kind of like portal or something like that. And there's this mantis being coming through the wall and behind this being, I don't, you know, the gender, I, I, I don't even want to get into that at this point of what the oh, gender we're going to get into it. You believe <laughs> me, we're getting into it. <laughs> but behind this being is David's mother, who I can only assume at that time is dead. Because Let's it's hope so, so. It's one of the most unremarkable paintings that he's ever done, but I think it sheds a lot of light on the ancillary aspects that tie into this phenomenon and how extremely vast and wide it really is. Yeah, it's. And by the way, I so I first I listened to your episode with the director Brad Abram uh, Abramson. Uh, Bra Abrahams, and, yeah. Uh, Abrahams, and then um, and then actually watched Love and Saucers, which is fantastic. It's like really, really entertaining. I mean, and not even that long. It's like just over an hour, but man, does it pack it in. And he did a lovely job. I mean, that is, I, I really, really enjoyed that uh, that movie. And um, and also seeing, well, well it, it, of course, it brought up a thousand questions. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, well, I mean, God, I mean, we're sort of all over the place, but what the hell? You, you, you know, you're, this is your rodeo. You keep, Heard me back when I go running over the <laughs> far hills. But, um, you know, he had, David Huggins had these uh, sexual relationships with this being, female being, that he named Crescent. Mm. And 
these were repeated and went on for, it sounds like, years, right? Yeah. Okay. So Whitley Strieber, and in his earlier books, and especially in this one, uh, The Supernatural, which just came out about a year ago, about these intense, erotic sexual encounters that he had with a clearly female intelligent energy of some sort that presented itself to him as looking like an alien of the sort that's on the cover of his books. And in the book, The Supernatural, Jeffrey Kripal talks about his sexual experience with a female entity that is associated with uh, the East Indian Tantric tradition, Mm -hmm. uh, the goddess Kali. And it's really, I mean, I mean, so there are clear comparisons that you can draw between these experiences and the way they talk about them, even, even though one sort of exists in a very different culture, and, and Jeffrey Kripal did not experience his as an alien or an extraterrestrial. His was a mythic religious figure. That being said, here's what I didn't find. Tell me if you did. Mm-hmm. I did not find any female heterosexual experiences that were classified as, you know, alien, where they were having a, a sexual relationship with an alien of any sort or an, or an alien energy. There have been examinations. There have been impregnations, theoretically. Mm-hmm. Uh, women experiencers believing that they're, uh, they've been made pregnant and then later that those fetuses have been removed from their body through some means. But that sort of focuses on the reproductive aspect. What they didn't talk about was what these other people talked about, these other guys, that sort of transcendent sexual encounter with a discarnate being. I didn't find any stories like that yet. Have you? No, absolutely not. And I think part of the problem in broaching a lot of this subject matter is that we're not finding out a whole lot of new information about abductees. There isn't really a lot of, in terms of published works, I, there aren't a lot, in my estimation, of I know that stuff being done. All of uh, Most of what we're referencing are old books, aside from The Supernatural, which is just a couple years old. And that book deals specifically with Kripal's experiences and Strieber's experiences and not with really a broad range. And I find it so strange because when you read the communion letters, the people who are writing to Willie Strieber are recounting incidences that have happened decades in the past sometimes. They're talking about encounters that sound like what Whitley Strieber went through, but they're taking place in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, long before Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out. Mm-hmm. And they're describing these... So, so my question goes in both directions. Who's chronicling those stories today? I mean, are we really saying that those you know, people are no longer having these experiences? That sounds unlikely. And I'm also really curious going in the other direction. In other words, where are the earliest notes of the earliest psychoanalysts from the, you know, 18 whenevers. And are there any notes or any journals or anything that sounds like this? And we know the phenomenon wears different forms and wears different masks ages, but there, there's simply no way that this is something that is 
you know, occurring over the last few decades, and before that, no, and since then, no. Right, and that's part of the problem. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really, it's problematic in terms of what data that you can get about this phenomenon. It's vastly limited. Well, so so what, what books did you, because I know you read a couple and we tried not to read the same books, but which ones did you go into? I most? largely consulted Abduction by John Mack, who really kind of, the, the first 50 pages of that book is just, here are all of the traits and commonalities and process and all of that stuff that's laid out in the first 50 pages. And then he gets into the stories of some of these abductees that he has worked with. Um, that's most of where it came from. There are some other papers that people have written. Uh, there was one by uh, Kathleen Marden, who is the niece uh. of Betty and Barney Hill. She's like the head of the, I believe, the experiencer research um, that MUFON does. And she co-wrote a, a book with Stanton Friedman about Betty and Barney Hill's abductions and stuff like that. She wrote this paper based on surveys that they had sent out. And uh, the problem with it is that, at least in terms of the of the responses that they got back, they didn't get back enough responses to really, really shed a lot of light on what was going on. The dad was really problematic, but I give her a lot of credit for trying. <laughs> well, who did she send? I mean, how did how did they find their pool of people? Uh, that's the thing. I couldn't tell you at, at this moment, just because I, it it's, was so problematic yeah. to me that I just didn't feel it was good enough to make note of. It's super frustrating that what seemed to be sort of ramping up in terms of research and even interest among people who, you know, were open to this kind of information, uh, that, that, you know, the, the ball has been dropped sometime in the last, you know, 15 to 20 years. Um, in, the, in the CDB Bryan book, they talk about a Roper poll um, that, uh, that was all about sort of and, and I guess they went out to a lot of people, and they were just trying to figure out, I'm trying to find where the reference is, but they were questioning a broad range of people about um, if any, like, you know, how many of them had had experiences they couldn't explain. And it wasn't directly about alien abduction. It was about a lot of things. But, but a handful of the questions were, were sort of tagged to be kind of like markers to see if people would themselves in some they can then be more closely questioned about what sort of experiences they had and um people complained oh here it is there were there were all kinds of questions i'll, I'll, I'll give you um i'll give an example uh the poll taker presented the 11 abduction related questions so within the survey they had these 11 questions among you know 150 200 others okay you want to hear what they are yeah absolutely Okay, so, um, you know, read down the list for each item. Tell me, to the best of your knowledge, if that has happened to you more than twice, once or twice, or never. Here are the things. Seeing a ghost. That's one. Two, feeling as if you left your body. Okay, and I'm going to get back to that one, because mm -hmm. that has to do with my theory. Oh, yes. Yes. All right. got a theory about abduction. Uh, and, and, and actually just communication with intelligent 
energies, which is what we're talking about. I'm going to try to stick to the terms that, you know, we've already laid down. But anyway, okay, so feeling as if you're leaving your body. Three, seeing a UFO. Four, waking up paralyzed with a sense of a strange person or presence or something else in your room. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, five, feeling that you were actually flying through the air, although you didn't know why or how. Uh, the next one, hearing or seeing the word trondant and knowing that it has a secret meaning for you. Uh, next, experiencing a period of time of an hour or more in which you were apparently lost, but you could not remember why or where you had been. Seen unusual lights or balls of light in a room without knowing what was causing them or where they came from. Uh, finding puzzling scars on your body and neither you nor anyone else remembering how you received them or where you got them. Uh, having seen either as a child or an adult a terrifying figure which might have been a monster, a witch, a devil, or some other evil figure in your bedroom or closet or somewhere else. And finally, uh, having vivid dreams about UFOs. Interesting. Okay, so those were 11 questions. Okay, now, the fun thing is that five of them were considered key indicators designed to elicit experiences related to abductions. Two other questions were considered check questions. Okay, in other words, they weren't, they were sort of just thrown in there. One was, have you ever seen a UFO? Mm-hmm. And the other one was the word trondant. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of obvious. I'm like, what? Trondant? <laughs> Isn't that weird? But I, like, I kind of freaked out when I read that. I'm like, wait, there's a word? people are seeing or hearing a friggin' word that I don't know about, I got pretty upset. I'm like, what's this Trondon thing all about? Well, it turns out that's a fictional word invented by Bud Hopkins. And, I mean, do we even need to explain to your audience who these people are? Uh, we, we might need to get into... Because, like, this is definitely for the initiated, but for those that aren't initiated, um, <laughs> let's get into the, the yeah, the, the kind of the players in the uh, abduction research. Um, we mentioned Bud Hopkins. Well, but, yeah, but Bud Hopkins wrote Intruders. Uh, and, and he also wrote Missing Time, right? That wasn't... Yes, he wrote... Okay. He, the, 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 the three main books that most people go to that Bud Hopkins wrote were Missing Time, Intruders, and uh, there's a... Oh, what the heck is the third one now? The third one is about the uh, Linda Cortiel abductions from the... Uh, oh, God. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, in reality, Bud Hopkins was the first guy to come along and kind of map out the kind of process with which an abduction happens and some of the characteristics, like Missing Time, for instance, and the classic scenario of someone being taken from their bedroom or taken from their car Take it and brought to, on board a craft, experimented on, and brought back. He was kind of the really the first person to lay that out in one form or another. Yeah, and and what's funny is that you know when these books came out and when all this stuff was sort of going on in the late '80s, part of what made it exciting was this feeling that oh my god, this thing is happening right now, and it felt like uh, an, an advancement in engagement. It's like well, gee, I remember you know you know. 
back in the 50s, people would see UFOs. And then in the 70s, they began to see the occupants of the UFOs. And now they're interacting with those occupants, and the occupants are abducting them, and it seems to be escalating. Mm -hmm. And it's happening right now. It's like tracking our history somehow. And I think that's kind of a false uh, narrative. But attempting one, because that's the way the information sort of got doled out to the common reader but just a little bit of investigation tells you that these interactions all up and down the scale from just seeing a light in the sky to actually having you know uh intercourse with these aliens again intelligent energies uh it's been going on for thousands of years and so the fact that it sort of got pulled out of popular culture and set on a table in a particular order made it really interesting and compelling and made it feel like, and, and almost forced people, I think, to sort of come up with a, a theory about, well, what's happening and why are they doing it? And, you know, every generation feels like it's the last generation and there's going to be a nuclear war or there's going to be some sort of world-ending event and that this must be tied in. And I think now, now you're way off into the woods. You're, you're, you're way off into the woods of interpretation and trying to nail stuff down that, you're, you're probably better off not trying to nail down too firmly because the minute you do, you got to pull those nails up and move them around because other information comes. Yeah, and for instance, to make mention of somebody else who, in the abduction research, who kind of went off the deep end a little bit, and not to say that he hasn't done good work, but David Jacobs. Uh, oh, David Jacobs, thank you. That's right. Um, I think Secret Life is a pretty good book, but part of my problem with David Jacobs is that most of his books are verbatim hypnosis regression sessions just you know dictated into book form and the problem is is that oh, he really? th- yeah and and he thinks that he's got the alien abduction or the alien agenda figured out because all of these people just you know uh, had these he, he conducted all of these hypnosis regression sessions and he's got it figured out and that's why I always joke whenever anybody says, hey, are you ever going to write a book? I'm like, yeah, it's going to be called uh, The Alien Agenda. Have you bothered asking them yet? Because realistically, <laughs> <laughs> like, no, no, you don't know The Alien Agenda. I'm sorry. <laughs> and you can't just putting it out there and saying, oh, we know The Alien Agenda. I, I, I feel it's damaging. And like, he's definitely separated himself out to to a certain side now which is which is fine which is fine i can i can deal with that but well it's it, but i it, it it drives me crazy when when it becomes too literal when when mm-hmm. people go okay i've got it figured out by the way though i do have it figured out but for other people i don't like it when they say so. <laughs> but rich but, has got it figured out no, he's it, listen rich haddam has got this game on check you you could just stop now because by the end of this episode He's right. he's got it figured out for you. It's. It, I'll tell you, I'm gonna have this whole paranormal thing wrapped up by mid June, and you can all go off and do, to start doing uh, podcasts about stamp collecting, okay? Because we're moving on. <laughs> so then I'll have to start uh, doing my podcast purely as uh, a form of nostalgia. So thank you, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in back in you know early 2018 when we were all still talking about UFOs. Yeah, right. No, nobody's talking about those anymore. <laughs> to the stars, but, what? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, I will, I'm going to throw, because, you know, he's my new hero, uh, I'm going to throw a lot of your listeners at uh, Jeffrey Kripal. Everything he writes, and especially especially this book, because I think it bridges, I mean, look, he's written some pretty dense stuff about um, religious history and Eastern religious traditions uh, that that are very academic, and, and, and even a genius like myself, uh, I, I have to really <laughs> slow down and walk carefully lest I trip, but... Um, this book, The Supernatural, which is also, you know, heavy on the philosophy, but it'll be familiar to your listeners. At least it's dealing with stuff and touching on myths and forms and ideas, and of course Whitley Strieber, things that we sort of know about, and then he's sort of saying, okay, you know this, now, now let me sort of bring you over here, and let me teach you a new way to even think about this stuff. And his way, I think, is the correct way, which is, d- don't, don't, let's not worry about interpretation right now. Let's just listen. Let's mm. just listen to what people are saying in, in, a, in a very sort of open way, and we'll actually start seeing a lot more. I mean, I will say that when Whitley Strieber's books came out, and even in the 90s when I first read the C.D.B. Bryan book, Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind, I, I was like, oh, I'm going to solve this. You know what we got to do? We got to find these abductees, and we got to put video cameras in all of their bedrooms, you know? which already sounds kinky, but we're going <laughs> to put cameras up and we're literally, if anything happens, we're going to see it, or at least we're going to see something because they're going to say, oh yeah, last night I was abducted. And it's like, well, no, you were right there the whole time, but maybe we'll see something else, light phenomena, something. And now I don't believe that at all. I don't, I don't think a, a, a video camera is going to do anyone any good because now we're getting close to my theory. But you, you let me know when you want to hear the theory. I can lay it down anytime you want. Okay. I think, to try and rein it in a little bit and just to give people who may not be as familiar with the phenomenon, just like how it goes down, the general procedure with, and like, that's the thing. The, 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 one of the most disturbing things to think about (laughs) is when John Mack writes in his book procedures for alien abduction. Okay. We're dealing with, Something that is beyond us, but it's got procedures. Okay, okay, I'll I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll bite, I'll bite. So, the first thing, as we've uh, mentioned before, this starts either in, uh, when people are recalling it, it either starts in the home, or it starts when someone's driving. It's when they are isolated, generally. And yes. uh, the the interesting thing is, is like they may be the most common, but realistically, it can happen at any time. Uh, David Huggins, he was just taken out of a field once, uh, in in broad daylight. So that that's definitely interesting. Um, John Mack did note that some while walking in nature, this does happen, and there are actually cases where children were taken from schoolyards. Sometimes their absence is noted. And sometimes it's not. So I've always found that kind of interesting because we're also we're talking about something that we're supposed to. It's it's like we're supposed to be talking about it in a physical sense, but it's not fully a physical sense. We're on both you know sides of this. It's physical and it's not physical. So that's the start of it. And usually it starts with intense audiovisual cues. So usually a really bright light, either blue or white. And sometimes they'll hear 
a buzzing or humming sound, and then sometimes they'll even see a being in the room, or a number of beings, for that matter, and they might even actually see a UFO itself. Right. Or they might not see that stuff at all, and it just may come off as this really odd thing that you can't place. Uh, Usually this occurs at night or early morning. That's the most common times for it to happen. And the interesting thing is that when the experience starts, most abductees say that it feels like a dream. That has always been interesting because what John Mack was getting at was this relates to somehow consciousness and these beings being able to affect our consciousness in some way. Yes. So that is one interesting aspect to it that maybe it is a dream. We're we're still kind of out in the weeds exactly how it functions. Maybe because we just will never be able to understand it, but I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. Um, And by the way, thank you for actually taking a moment now to explain what we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. But listen, hey, it's all good conversation. Uh, And I I want this to be as conversational as possible. I I, I just want to uh, endorse everything you've been saying. These are... Because you do, you kind of want to find, well, what, what, you know, are there commonalities in the experiences? And yeah, hearing something, and and sometimes beyond hearing things or or seeing the, the... uh, bright flashes of light. There are physical cues. People uh, uh, a certain tingling on certain parts of their bodies. Um, Orfeo Angelucci, the guy uh, that um, I talked about a year ago on the Astonishing Legends, he would have these weird, like almost painful uh, uh, feelings in his neck. Mm-hmm. So there, are, uh, some people feel a burning sensation or numbness, and some people, and and this also begs the question. How does sleep figure into this? Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it begins with people waking up in their bed and feeling paralyzed, and they can only move their eyes, and they feel wide awake, but they cannot move their bodies. Right. Which is, you know, hand-in-hand hand with hypnagogic hallucinations and the old hag syndrome, but then they take, you know, they go in a far different direction. So, please, continue. What happens yeah. next <laughs> with our alien hosts? <laughs> The, the the one thing and the most frightening thing that will happen after thinking that this is a dream, they will look at this and realize, no, they are fully conscious. This is really happening. It feels real and it doesn't feel real at the same time. So that's, yeah, it's, it's definitely getting into the those interesting aspects. But next what happens is the abductee will feel like they are being floated whether it's down a hall, through a wall, or through even the roof of their car. And in some cases, they actually feel a slight vibration as this occurs. So they're taking these people. Next, they notice that the light that they may have seen is coming from a craft of some kind, a UFO. Right. And this light is, is what's drawing them to the UFO. Usually around this time, the abductee realizes that they are essentially paralyzed. They cannot move. With the exception of, like like we said, the head and the eyes. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, they can scream. uh, Maybe not always, but 
an interesting story, and I know a friend of mine who listens to this podcast, he's going to be listening to this. Uh, his name is Josh. He described to me, because he he, he, he he had these feelings that, oh, man, I, th- I think I've been abducted. And like and I'm not making fun of him. It's like, I understand. You, you look into this stuff, and it's like playing WebMD with the universe. You, you think you, uh, you, you've become an abductee? So, Bad so, idea. Yeah. So Bad he tells idea. me <laughs> he tells me about this dream that he has and he's in an abduction like scenario and he's laying on a table and he can see beings above him. The only thing he can do is move his head, but the moment that he moves his head, they back up. And he lays his head back down, they come back over finish what they're doing and he ends up waking up in like a cold sweat so Hmm. the head aspect the only being able to move the head aspect is 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 pretty fascinating like why the head why can they move that uh, yeah i don't know and 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 maybe maybe that's just movement of the eyes that feels like it's associated with the head i will tell you that what you never hear ever is any real control the person has once they're into the experience they do not have control this is in other words it's not a lucid dream which is sort of the opposite in a lucid dream your conscious mind learns how to identify when you are in a dream state when the subconscious i guess is presenting you a dream and then the conscious mind you train your conscious mind to come into that dream and then it's like oh great now i can fly and you fly around or you or you face the monster that's coming after you and and you can do all kinds of things but in these experiences the person the experiencer has no control they don't get up and run around through the ufo and try to get out they don't throw a punch they don't turn the tables it simply has never been heard of um, any kind have you one there is one, sir, and it's a really obvious one. And it's a lie and uh, a damn lie. Well, n- now wait, 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 just one second. Now, it, Travis Walton, he <gasps> he was able to get up, and he, in his experience, okay. So, for those that don't know, Travis Walton, we'll we'll briefly touch on the story here. Uh, Travis Walton. Look, if you don't he, know Travis Walton, you should just move on to another podcast. That's all I'm telling you. Rich, we're, we're inclusive of everybody here. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, should wel- I should welcome the, the uninitiated. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, Travis Walton, native of Arizona, he and uh, six other co-workers were driving back from logging in a national forest that day it was around i I believe like 6 30 at night and they see this light through the trees coming down the road they see a ufo in a field and travis walton the he's the kind of guy at the time that he didn't give a crap he was doing it whatever it was he was doing it he was a daredevil of some kind and he goes up to this object and then and it is just hanging out in a field. Either it's struggling or it's just hovering there. And all of a sudden he gets hit with a blue beam of light, which throws him back, knocks him out. His coworkers just drive off. They're scared to death, which is terrible. If you know your your coworkers clearly don't care about you, but 
Uh, <clears throat> well, at, at a certain point, we all realize this in our lives. <laughs> we're we're helpless. We're just helpless, and there's nothing we can do. <laughs> when the when the UFO comes, pray you're not with your coworkers. Yes, yes. Yeah, so his coworkers, they feel guilty, and they drive back out there to look for Travis. They can't find him. He goes missing for about five days, and he turns up, I believe, in a town nearby, ends up using a payphone to call his brother. And the story that we get from Travis Walton is that it was the typical abduction story with, with a few different caveats. He was on a table when he came to, and there were... I don't know if they were exactly like the greys which uh, i'm we'll touch on exactly the idea but the greys are the most commonly reported type of beings that people interact with in these kind of scenarios he gets up off the table and he's being aggressive so they just back off he ends up leaving a room enters another one sees a bunch of deer uh, different weird instrument panels and in through another door comes these tall essentially what we will call nordics they are like six feet tall they look human they have blonde hair blue eyes they lead him to another room they put him under and uh eventually he's returned Uh, the interesting thing about travis walton's case is that he does not believe he was abducted for the normal reason that people are abducted for he believes that what they were doing to him was bringing him back to life healing him because they essentially killed him with that blue beam of light. So Travis Walton is the only real exception to the rule that I can think of because, and that may have to do with the scenario that he was in. Well, it's funny. I mean, it's like, so now he's describing uh, an abduction scenario, which is at the same time a near death experience right? where he dies and is brought back by people who are not human. I mean, I mean, it's crazy. And, and I think there are a lot of overlaps between these two phenomenon. But, I mean, it's funny. I, I, I don't know that case deeply, but th- that's the first thing that strikes me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was like an alien abduction that turned into an NDE. Yeah. And a lot of people don't look at it like that. Just because... And um, I'm going to... Uh, I hate to do it, but... I'm going to call a one Mr. Forrest Burgess out um, here. When I was on and I did the Careful. imminent disclosure episodes, the part one, we get to the end, toward the end of the episode, and he goes off on this tirade, and he says the words, that's not <laughs> a phenomenon. Forrest tirade? Yeah. <laughs> not, a, not necessarily a tirade, but it, it's like, you know, that stream of consciousness that he gets into. And don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> You know exactly what I'm talking about from experience, damn it. <laughs> and he says the words, that's not phenomenon, that's a machine. Well, I disagree, to a certain extent. It's not just a machine that we're talking about here. And I think in, in terms of the UFO phenomenon as a whole, that's what keeps us going. It's not just a machine that we're talking about. It's something deeper, uh, something that we're trying to find a deeper understanding towards. Now, when you say machine, you're saying, uh, uh, we're now talking about, is it a, is it sort of a, a 
aliens or are we talking about nuts and bolts UFOs coming from a planet where they were built? Right, right, right. Is that the point he was making? Yes, right. Yeah. Well, yeah, this is, and, and this is tough. And, and oddly enough, I almost think that, that, you know, I've just argued for inclusiveness. And yet I would almost say that, that if there are physical beings and physical crafts visiting this world, it feels like a separate thing than what these people experience. Let, can, I, can I lay something out for you? Can, can I ask yeah. a question? I, yeah. Okay. Here, here's what, I, what I'm feeling. And this whole disclosure thing that came up a couple months ago, again, and then with all the stuff I've been reading, here's what I don't get. Okay? And, and this is my whole sort of complaint with the notion that there are secret government bases and there are crashed disks and the government's in possession of them. Um, and here's why. When, when you hear about disclosure, when you hear the core story of disclosure, which tends to be, well, there were crashed disks at Roswell and maybe another location, and uh, those disks were then brought by the military to bases where they were then studied and various technologies have been reverse engineered, alien bodies have been kept on ice, maybe in some versions of the story there was actually communication between the dying alien and the military personnel who were in possession of that alien's body, and there's a lot of answers that the military and the government knows. Meanwhile, they're figuring things out. In some stories, there's been a treaty signed about how the aliens will interact with us. All of this stuff and we're learning from their technology, and we're kind of breaking it down, and none of that sounds anything like any experience anyone outside the government has ever had interacting with these beings. Right. Ever. Right. And how is there such a stark dividing line? How is the government the only people who are in possession of extraterrestrial craft? If these things are coming around... Shouldn't they have crashed in places where the government doesn't know about them and doesn't have them, and they're in some guy's barn? Right. And communication is that simple and that direct and that familiar. Wouldn't that characterize the communications that people like you and I and Travis Walton and Whitley Strieber and Jeffrey Kripal and all these other people who have had these experiences, wouldn't they similarly, as human organisms, be able to talk with these people and sign treaties and have free-flowing communication that makes sense to them? It's such a materialist view all the disclosure stories all the sort of eth conspiracy theories it's all about physical proof mm. and 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 government panels and that bears no resemblance when you just talk to an experiencer they're just like i don't know what the fuck happened right it was weird as shit and it makes no sense and i was helpless they were in control and they said weird things and showed me weird pictures and did weird things to me and then put me back in my bed. Yeah. Now, in other words, here's what I'm saying. Someone ain't telling the truth here. Yeah, one of these things is not like the other. That they have control over the situation, and I don't think they got control over the situation right. at all. And believe me, I understand wishing you did, but I don't think they do. That's a great point. Uh, th that is an absolute great point. And a lot of this, to me, comes from the work that came out in like the seven, the late 70s, the early 80s, the, the, the time when OSI was doing their thing and putting these little nuggets of mythology into like these UFO sightings that people were having. 
And the thing is, is like, the people that were on the ground floor at the time were not buying it. And if you look at the ones that ultimately ended up investigating it and putting names like, you know, making names like Roswell a household term that everybody knows, Stanton Friedman, he was at the the base of all of that and, and, and a bunch of different people. Yeah. But mythology is not something that this phenomenon is all about. And it definitely overshadows the way that these experiences that people have they're totally different and i completely agree with you well i mean you know a guy like stan freeman you know clearly a smart guy but also a scientist and you know a guy who's you know very well versed in physics and you know nuclear power and whatever but that's his go-to i mean mm -hmm. that's going to be the go-to the go-to is going to be technology you know because that's what you got so in a way it's almost becoming it's almost getting to the point that people who study this phenomenon at all seriously who take a strict materialist view the burden is far more on them now to manifest some material whereas somebody like you know Jeffrey Kripal who i believe is arguing that and and sort of what i argue that these are largely psychic experiences mm. that have a physical aspect, but a physical aspect that we don't understand yet, that leans way more toward, forget about alien bodies, forget about crashed discs, talk to the experiencers. Figure out what really is going on with them. Don't dismiss them, don't shame them, don't ridicule them, which is also 99% of humanity's reaction. Let's find out what they're really experiencing. And by the way, when you talk to those people, guess what they're not saying? Overwhelmingly, they're not saying these are extraterrestrials in a nuts and bolts craft from another planet. Mm. Some of them have been given that information, but th they don't necessarily believe it. And a lot of them are like, yeah, I was told, you know, that they, they said they were from this particular star system and they said this and that and the other thing. But I don't really think that's the case or, you know, you're not getting a lot of agenda from these people. The agenda of the experiencer is, could you help me out, figure out what happened to me? Yeah. Science. Yeah. Do a brother a solid and help us figure this out instead of just saying that we're crazy, we're dreaming, or we're lying because we're going to make a lot of money, which, by the way, very few people do, right. if anyone. Right. Whitley Strieber made some money, but he was already making money. He was already writing bestsellers. Yeah, he was. Um, he had written, what, like three or four by the time that he published Communion, and Two of them had been made into movies yeah. by that time. So, yeah, he was definitely... Yeah, The Hunger, The Wolf, and yeah, yeah. he's doing fine. Yeah. All right, so we're floating in the air. We're going towards the UFO now. Yeah, and we are. Now we're entering... We're, we're passing the threshold. We're inside. One of the, the One of the cool things and one of the most fascinating things here is that no abductee that I have read ever remembers entering the craft. They never remember pr crossing that threshold. It's like, all of a sudden, they're floating up towards the craft. Next minute, they're sitting in a room, waiting. Just... Mm. That sounds right. They, I, I, I think you're correct. I'm trying to think if anyone ever talks about going up a ramp or something, but it, they approach the craft, now they're in the craft. Yeah. I think that's right. I, I I'm not sure. I've I, I I can't recall any at this point. But now I'm on the lookout. And now 
they're uh, generally taken to kind of a, a, a waiting area and uh, before the it, it it has a very doctor's office feel to it which is it, it kind of weird to start with it's like I'm being taken out of my bedroom and I, I'm being brought to the doctor's office at like three in the morning. What the hell's going on? I don't know. Is it? I, 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 I never read about, uh, they're not looking at magazines. There's no poster about rosacea <laughs> on the wall. Right. They're just sitting in some room with some metal furniture and they don't seem to be very happy about it. I think one of the most stark interpretations of this that I've ever seen and it's kind of my origin story to how I was introduced to this phenomenon and of course it was for me unsolved mysteries and in particular it was the case of the Allagash abductions the four guys camping in in Maine who stupidly signal a UFO with a flashlight and end up getting abducted and they are brought to this room where they end up waiting and like they each go in one at a time and are you know, experimented upon. So that's my origin story with it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's weird. Cause that's a weird abduction story. It is. I will tell you this, it's very well, well, atypical me, me... in a, in a sense, because it's basically we signaled a UFO with our flashlight and it just took us for no reason. <laughs> That's totally crazy. Um, a, a point that gets brought up in uh, the C.D.B. Bryan book is how the the typical features of the exams that people receive from the aliens on the UFO are so different and so unlike the experience of going to a doctor mm-hmm. um, on here on Earth. Uh, in the book, uh, Dr. John G. Miller uh, points out abductees accounts of the medical procedures carried out upon them by the aliens are so different from our own terrestrial medicine that it is extremely unlikely the origin of the abductees reports lies anywhere in the abductees own past medical experience or knowledge they're not being x-rayed they're not there there's no interest in the respiratory system or even the digestive system there's a huge interest in the reproductive system mm-hmm. but in terms of drawing blood uh or, or just all the sort of the things that we've all experienced a million times um that's not what happens in the craft so people aren't just sort of taking what happens to them in a doctor's office and then kind of transposing into these aliens they're telling very similar stories of examinations that don't bear a ton of resemblance to human medical examinations Let's talk about some of these procedures. After they've been sitting in the waiting room for, you know, maybe a couple minutes, uh, generally a being or a group of beings lead the abductee into the next room. And generally in the next room is what you will find is a metal table and they are asked to lay on the table. And now the procedures begin and, Instruments are used on various parts of the body. Generally, the nose and the sinuses are um, d- play a part. The eyes at times, sometimes the ears. Right. And usually, this is associated with implants of some kind, but it, it may be other stuff too. Um, arms, legs, the feet, the abdomen, and the genitalia. 
sometimes it, it's very rare, but sometimes there are some abductees that have reported that they have done stuff to their chest, but it's not very common. Yeah, that I don't hear that much. No. Procedures usually heavily revolve around the reproductive system, and generally they have these instruments that penetrate the abdomen, and it is believed that's where they take sperm and egg samples. And sometimes uh, that is where it, it, one... I don't know exactly how common it is in, in the abduction literature, but sometimes women are... Uh, f they're fertilized. They are... They have a... They're, they're basically carrying a, a, a alien-human hybrid baby, or however you want to call it. Yeah. Well, I mean, because of this, it gets very easy to go to that next step. And by the way, this, on a quasi-physical level, that, you know, that sort of in our dimension, which seems very physical, is hard to understand, we're led to believe, well, okay, so that they're taking reproductive material from us here on Earth, and then somehow using it in a slightly different, I mean, well, I guess if you're David Jacobs, it's like, you know, it's all physical, and the aliens are physical, mm -hmm. and they're just taking it, and they're implanting it into their, you know, aliens, and, and hybrid babies are being born. Okay, so that's sort of the David Jacobs take on all this. Mm -hmm. um, and, and while on the one hand, I want to reject all that and go, ah, it's too simple, it's too physical, it's too material, on the other hand, you can't get away from the overwhelming sexual nature of many, 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 many of these encounters. And sometimes it has to do with, you know, procreation, and other times it almost feels like it's just about the sex act. Yeah. Um, certainly that, that appears to be what was going on with Kripal. A lot of uh, Whitley Strieber's uh, is sort of, he talks about how it affects as, you know, a communion with a, a different form of life and a, maybe a more evolved life form. But you, you can't get away from the fact that sex plays a huge role in these encounters. Yeah, and the first ever heavily reported abduction case of an individual, it played a big part. Antonio Villasporas of Brazil was out in a field at about 1 a.m. in the morning. He was a farmer doing, I think he was plowing a field or something like that. And he's taken on board a UFO, and he is made to have sex with... They were not... They weren't your typical, like, nothing like Crescent or, or anything like that, like in the David Huggins kind of scenario. They were definite, like, anthropomorphic beings, but they did not look entirely human. And um, the weird thing was is that... You know, he believed it was for reproductive purposes, and then when all was said and done, this female alien basically pointed to the sky, and he took that as a sign that she was now pregnant. So, that hmm. is your first widely reported abduction case. It's an interesting one. <clears throat> wow. Yeah. And, um, you know, in the uh, CDB Brian book, uh, there, there's a lot of really creepy sort of like, you know people saying I was taken aboard, frankly, mostly women, and being told, here, hold this hybrid baby, 
hold it, hold it. And people are like, I don't want to. And it's like, no, hold it. And they describe holding these sort of weird doll-like creatures that are partially human maybe and partially alien. They look like a cross between both. And, and there seems to be a great interest in sort of like, you know, nurture this thing. Can you nurture this thing? Mm-hmm. And it gets very eerie and very creepy because a lot of people feel that, you know, the, the, these intelligent energies, these aliens present as sort of uh, emotionless. And some contactees and abductees have said that they believe that the purpose behind all this is to study human emotion. Mm-hmm. That that is something that these creatures don't seem to understand. They don't really get human pain. Um, sometimes the abductee will be in pain, and the alien will say, no, you're not in pain. You're not feeling any pain. We know you're not. And they're like, no, I really, really am. And so then the, the being will touch them or touch their forehead or do something, and then the pain will go away. But they seem surprised and confused by fear, by all this stuff. There was one case in Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind that I thought was really great and totally hilarious, sort of toward the the back of the book when they're interviewing these two specific women who are at the conference and now he's conducting long-form interviews with them. But anyway, one of them was explaining or talking about a story where she was on one of these crafts and was really upset, and, and she did start to yell at the alien. She didn't have a lot of physical control, but she was sort of yelling and going, this isn't fair. You know, you've got to stop and, you know, you know you've got to answer my questions or I'm not going to participate. And the alien's like, calm down. Stop acting all crazy. <laughs> You're <laughs> freaking me out. Right, right. <laughs> Which I, I just love. I just love the alien going, oh, these humans, so emotional. Now they're giving me attitude. Oh, just shut up. All right, whatever. What do you want? Just stop screaming at me. That I kind of liked, um, because it was a version of what the alien said to Whitley Strieber when they took him. They were like, um, is there anything we can do to make you stop screaming? Yeah. Because <laughs> we've got business to conduct, and you're kind of, you know, all you're thrashing around is slowing things down. The first time I ever came across something like that was reading Bud Hopkins' Intruders, and it was a scenario that we're describing now of these hybrid children, and... Uh, I forget what the woman's name was at the moment, but they were taking the baby from her. Because one of the common things that women report in these scenarios is that after a certain gestation period and carrying this baby, the baby is removed and it's uh, raised on the ship. It's it's actually, they often report seeing it put into like a jar of some kind and being whisked off for further development on board the craft. They were taking it from her, and she started screaming at the beings, and they looked at her in kind of like they didn't understand why she was upset, why she was angry. So fucking aliens. They don't understand emotions, man. Damn it all. (laughs) Unbelievable. Yes. Uh, And... All throughout this experience, they're being told that no harm will come to them. Well, Um, what does that... Well, to be fair, but, well, to be fair, though, even even the most famous, like, like, can anyone, can anyone have heard any story of someone being physically harmed, permanently harmed, dramatically physically altered in some serious way? And my answer would be no. I haven't read about that either. Well, on the opposite end of that, in terms of not permanently hurt, but actually healed. 
there are these, oh, right. these oh, yeah. rare cases of abductees that have, they're not always life-threatening injuries, but these injuries that miraculously end up being cured. And that right there kind of, when you think about it, it kind of veers into that territory of miracles being performed and, you know, religious rites and, and stuff like that. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. The circle keeps getting wider. Like, and it, uh, like I, I don't like the idea of, of talking about Venn diagrams that overlap each other. Like, oh, the NDE overlaps on the abduction and the, you know, religious phenomenon overlaps onto that. I think we're talking about one big circle that keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. And I think from our end, it's just that we can see the commonalities. And I, maybe that's part of our development as a species is like, because when you look at Jacques Vallée, when he's talking about, when he was the first guy to really bring up the connections between fairies and abductees and, and, and stuff like that. It all takes a modern interpretive lens to go back and say, well, the similarities are here. This is where they are. This is what the similarities are. So it's something that takes gradual development through society in order to look back to see those kind of commonalities throughout history, which some people are going to point to that and say that it's problematic, but if the similarities are there, they're there. And you could say all, all day long that humans are people that try to discern patterns out of everything but if the patterns are there does that not mean something yeah um i i I think it does and that's again why i'm sort of like you know let's circle back to the experiencers like i you know i i i I think again like david jacobs i think you get way into big trouble when you start to try to explain the alien agenda Mm -hmm. but but which is why my theory, if you would ever let me tell it, oh, we'll get there. By, we'll and get by there. now, I've oversold it. I've oversold it. Well, I should have started with it, and then we could have, you know, spent the entire episode tearing it apart and realizing that, you know, it's really not that great. But anyway, um, but but you know, forget what they are trying. Let's just sort of figure out what's happening with us and why certain people have these experiences, and then and 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 kind of go from there. Mm. Oh hey hey you want to hear a little a little mini theory I'll give you a little mini theory okay give me a the mini, mini theory I came up with okay oh, here's a mini you know okay you know you know the famous falling leaf motion of the UFO yes yeah you've heard of this right yep okay so, so quite often people say oh it, it it made this weird sort of like motion and they describe it in two different one is like a falling leaf or like a or like a little uh, saucer you know from a cup and saucer. Uh, being dropped in the water the way it would, yeah. it would you know kind of find its way to the bottom of the ocean or whatever and i've got a theory about this that that sort of falling leaf back and forth movement you know what that reminds me of hmm. it reminds me of the watch the hypnotist uses to put you in a trance well i've g- <laughs> i've got a story that i think i can link into that Let's hear it. Uh, my first UFO sighting. It happened when I was about 14 or 15 years old. Uh, my sister had just moved out of our house. And she had actually moved, I think, like right next door to where we were. But I moved into her bedroom. And where we put my bed, it was right by the window. And there were these three small windows, essentially, that you could look out. You could see the night sky, you know, pretty well. And one night, uh, I was getting ready for bed, 
And I looked out the window and I see this orange light in the sky. And what it did was it would turn on and then it would turn off. And then it would appear sideways in a sideways location, like turn on, turn off. And it would keep doing this in a side to side motion until I, I might have watched it for maybe five minutes until the point where I just said, I'm going to bed now. You're watching a UFO, and you, you, all you can think about is going to bed. So, d- definitely an interesting aspect. I, I I like that, and it ties into what the kind of what I've I've experienced. So, thanks, thanks for uh, thanks for That's bringing awesome. thanks for bringing those fears back up. Thank you. <laughs> um, my pleasure. Um, I'm glad, glad I could do it, and um, you know it, it connects up to my uh, you know my uh, much ballyhooed theory that it, it, there is a requirement, a prerequisite of many of these experiences is entering an altered state of consciousness, mm-hmm. and I think sometimes people are naturally able to do that, even if they don't know they're naturally able to do it, and I think in some cases the outside force, the intelligent energy helps it along mm. by doing things like that, by placing you in that altered state of consciousness and then achieving whatever it needs to achieve or communicate and then releasing. I've often linked it to uh, one of my offshoot theories is that there are some people who are able to communicate telepathically easier than others for whatever reason. Yeah. What? Well, I don't know what would cause that, whether it's something genetic or something beyond that because like there are these there's all kinds of great abilities that only very few human beings possess the athletic ability musical ability some people can get on stage and do stand-up comedy and be brilliant other people not so much but just because it's rare in a way that that almost argues for its existence it's like yeah Certain people, very rare cases, can do amazing things in terms of math or science or art. And, and so why is it so hard to believe that other people have those same rare skills in terms of things like telepathy, remote viewing, or the ability to go into a trance state and communicate with, you know, whatever's out there? Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the beings themselves, the, the, the greys as we call them, in our society. So... There are generally... I refer to them as Rob's Rob's little buddies. <laughs> I, I hate you. I hate you so much right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> How many of your guests do you say that to? I, I, I think I'm the only one. You, you probably are. You probably are. So, the greys. The interesting thing is, is that there are essentially two types of them their hierarchy is divided by height of all things which is is pretty... <laughs> it's a good idea right it makes perfect sense right uh it, it does except like they're all the same damn height <laughs> so that that tends to make you wonder a, a, a little bit so well, the Nordics are taller. The Nordic beings are taller than the greys. And sometimes there's a tall grey. There, there are taller greys, right? Yeah. The most common ones are the... We call them the small workers. They're usually three and a half to four feet tall. 
They have the, yeah. the large pear-shaped heads that uh, they protrude in the back. They have long arms with three to four fingers, thin torsos, spindly, thin legs, and uh, we're, we're, we're getting to one of the most unique features. Their feet, the only time they're ever seen is when, or usually ever seen, is when they are wearing boots of some kind. Or they don't remember what they look like, or they just kind of refuse to... Or they did, they just say, well, some were wearing shoes and others weren't. But they never described their feet. No, ex- except you came across one instance in which someone did describe the feet. You have noted that, so would you like to read the description of the feet, please? Once you told me that's what you were looking for, I couldn't stop looking for it. Yes. Okay, you ready for this? Yep. Hit me with the feet, man. All right. This woman, Carol, in this book, uh, was having an experience where she was brought on board a ship and made to look at horses. Horses. All right. So, horses. <laughs> for so I don't know why. They, they're like, look at these horses. And so she's looking at these young foal. And, and she says, uh, the only thing odd about them was their feet. Instead of hooves, they had pads, soft, round, flexible pads that flattened and spread when they... P- talking about the horses right now, mm, okay? Yep. So they look like normal horses, but they got weird pads for their feet. Okay. And she says, uh, yeah, they reminded me of camel's feet, except there were no toes. And then later... Carol asks the beings, it's like, well, why Why was I looking at, at, at horses? And, and there's weird things about the horses. And uh, uh, the alien says, yes, horses, yes, what about the horses? And she says, well, their feet, their hooves. And the alien says, yes, horses are changed. And she's like, what? Horses are changed? What? And then she goes, people are, the, the alien says, people are changed. And, and Carol says, are their feet changed? And then the alien says, horses are changed. And so now, now they're just discussing the, the feet of these horses. And later, a different person altogether named Brenda, Brenda says, um, I had flashbacks of seeing greys, but none of the memories made it real. I kept remembering these abduction accounts, but they didn't seem real. What made it real for me was when abductee Betty Andreessen uh, described in her book the shoes the aliens had put on her feet. They were made of some sort of clear element, glass or plastic of some kind, and were three inches high. And the same shoes were put on me. They had some way of staying on your foot. I don't know if it was a strap or what, but Andreessen described this as some way of monitoring you around the ship. And that's exactly what they put on my feet. When I later read this in her book, I burst into tears. It was the sort of small detail that you never hear and that makes you think, my God, how can two people have the exact same image? Okay. In no case do they ever describe the alien's feet. But they do describe aliens being interested in feet and also having horses with weird feet. Dude, that's the best I could do. <laughs> and that is one of the most... It's, it's a phenomenon that of all of this is driving me insane because I do not understand (laughs) why it is in countless. And I'm not just talking about abduction scenarios. I'm talking about close encounter of the third kind scenarios. Most of the time they cannot either 
remember the feat or right. they just avoid the question. In one case that I brought to your attention that I will be... It, it'll probably be the first real abduction case that I cover is of a man named David Stevens. And most people won't know who David Stevens is, but if you're familiar with the Men in Black phenomenon, you'll know who the uh, hypnotist that he worked with, his name was Herbert Hopkins. Herbert Hopkins had w one of the most infamous Men in Black encounters that, that is retold over and over and over again, where he uh, was paid a visit by this really strange man who acted more robotic than human and uh, it, it's a really strange story and I'll be getting into it but one of the things that Hopkins tried to focus on and asked multiple times was about the feet the only thing that he would say and he only said it once and this was over multiple sessions over about the course of a year he would avoid the question until one time he just said the only thing he would say was that some of them were wearing shoes and some of them weren't that's all they would say like like he was like not allowed to say anymore that was kind of the impression that they were getting like there are these weird aspects to the hypnotic regression that ends up happening that we're we're not even going to really we're not going to touch on the hypnotic regression stuff it's kind of built into it but like there are these times when they will ask the abductee a certain question and they will just flat out avoid it for whatever reason. And that may be common in, you know, other types of like hypnotic regression that people go through. But the, the weird thing is, is like, it's not that they're avoiding it out of fear or something like that. It's just, it's not important to them or get this idea that they're not supposed to talk about it. So, right. That and and a, oh, I was just going to say a quick word about hypnotic regression because that 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 again becomes sort of a catch-all for, you know, debunkers to say, well, this is all these are all you know created memories drawn out during hi hypnosis sessions that aren't monitored and aren't being carried out with you know scientific whatever. But but the vast majority of abductees and experiencers they have conscious recall of the events. And yes. hypnosis is only used to uh, garner further details. It's not like these people have never told a story and then somehow during hypnosis they start spouting stories of being abducted. Uh, that simply isn't the case. By the way, I, I knew it was in here. I found one. Oh, you found it, one. This will be the first one you've ever heard. It's in, the, it's in this one, the Communion Letters, okay. this book. Page 16, a very short letter, and the person is describing the alien, and they say their skin is smooth and there's a smell like no smell from this planet, but they're really thin and they have pudgy bellies. They have four fingers, get ready. Feet like ours, but like a duck's, sort of, with webs. Uh, she did not notice any clothing or hair on them, and then it said, uh, their planet is damp, and we think that it has dirty air, but it has really clean air. So anyway, but there you go. One case, one time, a person said they noticed the feet, and they were like ours, but like a duck's, because they were web. You know what's interesting about that? The David Stevens abduction. Do you know how he described the hands of the beings? No. They were webbed. Fuck. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we, okay, we're in big trouble now. Now they know we know, and we're fucked. Yeah, 
Yeah, big time. Uh, we we blown this whole thing wide open, and I like the thing is, is like why? What is so important about the feet? I don't know. I don't feel comfortable even talking about it anymore. Maybe they don't want us to know. Rob, what if one of us disappears? I think we're gonna be fine, Rich. Don't worry. Uh, but yeah, like during the whole Mothman flap, and you're well familiar with it, as you know, as we all know, <laughs> because you did screenwrite, you know, the the one truly remarkable movie, The Mothman Prophecies, um, based on the on the book by John Keel. But there was a crazy amount of stuff that was just happening all throughout the United States, all throughout the world, really, in terms of UFO sightings, people just seeing them all over the place. Um, in, in 67, for instance, you had, uh, and I recently covered it on uh, the, the first Patreon bonus episode I did, the story of Stefan Mikulak, who was in Canada, in, in Manitoba. He observed, essentially, a flying saucer that came down, landed, and when it um, flew off, it burned him to the point where he ended up with these this grid pattern scar on his abdomen. It's it's one of Canada's most famous cases. You also have the Shag Harbor incident where a UFO is seen diving into the waters off of Nova Scotia. And one tiny case that John Keel investigated in early November 66 in I believe it's Gaffney, North Carolina or South Carolina, one of the Carolinas. These two police officers encounter a UFO. It lands, and this short being gets out. It looks human. It's it, it, it's human, but it's short, and it spoke a language that they kind of understood. When they asked it questions, it wouldn't answer their questions. But one of the interesting things about that case, they could describe this being you know perfectly but they couldn't remember what its feet looked like. They even had the impression that it wasn't walking, it was kind of floating. See, that's really weird, because, you know, you know, the Japanese ghost, the Yuri, mm -hmm. which is one of the most sort of famous kinds of ghosts from Japanese folklore, it, um, and, and it shares a lot of the characteristics with the, uh, the female ghost from the ring. It manifests its body uh, up or down to about the knees and then it just fades off into smoke and it floats, but you never see feet. It's the, it's the sort of footless legless ghost. Mm -hmm. What is it with these beings and their feet? Uh, is it, I mean, is it some weird metaphor about how they are not connected to the earth, how they are not grounded in some way? Right. That That's, that's a great point. And here's the interesting thing because I posed that question on Twitter one day and I'm just like, because I'll, I'll randomly have a thought and I'll just, I'll put it somewhere so I can come back to it and look at it and, and see if there's anything I can go back to. And I and the feet thing was one thing that I just like threw out there as like, you know, one of the most fascinating things about this phenomenon. Nobody can ever remember what their feet look like. And the great John Tenney, ever ever quick oh, John ever quick to return. He's like, You ever find it interesting that when it comes to aliens and spiritual phenomenon, the feet don't seem to play a part, but when it comes to cryptids, feet play a big part. Oh, a nice pun, and he's yes. correct. That is weird. That is really weird. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, that is really maybe you know they're they're of the earth. That's fascinating. I love I, I love insights like that. Yeah. Um, um, 
Oh, I was going to say something about John. You brought up John. Oh, 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 I was listening to the, your interview with John, um, your your podcast. Mm-hmm. By the way, am I missing episodes? Do, do I need to be a Patreon subscriber to really get all of the Rob I need in my life? Apparently, I'm missing episodes now because I'm not on Patreon. It's only one episode. What are you, Gilbert Gottfried? <laughs> it's only one. It's only one. Jesus. <laughs> only, yeah, you've got... You've, you've, you've posted 10 episodes, but there's 90 that are only for Patreon subscribers. Okay. <laughs> no, um, what I was going to say was he brought up this really weird point. He's like, well, you know, uh, the, the thing that no one ever talks about in these, you know, alien encounters is, uh, is when the aliens are wearing uh, historical costumes and clothing. Mm-hmm. Remember yes, that? I, I do. It, it kind of kicked off the uh, idea in my head that I was going to look for all the atypical crap that is associated with this phenomenon. So, uh, yeah, it was it was definitely something that I haven't forgotten about since. <laughs> well, it's so weird because, like, later that day, because I'd never heard of that. I'm like, nah, that guy's full of shit. And then, later that day, in the community letters... Listen to this. I even wrote John Tenney in the, uh, <laughs> in, the in the margin. A uh, person says, I was startled to see a very slim creature about four and a half feet tall. Okay, yawn. Mm-hmm. Then, on its head, it wore a World War I-style pie plate helmet, along with a large trench coat or lab coat with padded shoulders, a thin and tight bodysuit or jumpsuit, a belt with odd-looking tools on it, and an X-shaped escutcheon on its chest what it's like what but the world war one thing freaked me out and then a letter a couple pages later uh talked about the aliens arriving in a 1930s sedan and the alien sort of presented itself as a child wearing tight-fitting silver pajamas and then suddenly that got me down a whole road of, wait, what are they doing? And is this now connected to the men in black who try to appear in a way that they think is going to be familiar to the person? Mm-hmm. Maybe that's behind what, what John Tenney observed, or, or at least sort of picked out from the various uh, stories that he had heard, an attempt by these intelligent energies to try to look the part in some way that never works and only makes them look scarier and weirder. And their attempts to calm us with their World War One outfits is just not working. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. With the with the Men in Black phenomenon, they never could seem to get it right. It's the it's the damn nineties, and you're wearing clothes from the fifties, and you're driving a nineteen fifty three Buick, whatever. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting. That that is interesting, and it's like aliens wearing clothing. It always seemed fascinating because, like, you know the the uh, I I believe it's a paperback copy of uh, Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind. Have you ever seen the cover of that? It's orange and black, and it. Oh, I don't. Yeah. It. Yeah, I know the one. I don't have it. Yeah. It and and it has one of the most iconic sketch images of the alien where. It's the typical gray, and it's got the black almond-shaped eyes, but it looks like it's wearing a turtleneck. <laughs> the, the clothing aspect is always... It doesn't make sense unless it's there no. for familiarity okay. of some okay. kind. Totally. But, but, but now this connects with why do ghosts wear right. clothes? Right. 
Um, and this is a question asked, you know, well over 100 years ago by the first members of the uh, British SPR, uh, Society for Psychical Research. And one of the first questions were, well, why, are they, why, why is a ghost wearing clothes? Everyone says they saw a ghost and was wearing an outfit. Why, why is a ghost, if this is the person, the person's soul, why is it wearing clothes? But I think it speaks to the interaction. Mm -hmm. There's an interaction between the observer and the observed. Mm -hmm. And there is a, an, an attempt to meet you know, halfway by both. And now it begs the question, well, you know, why, why don't the aliens, you know, you know why, why are they showing up in UFOs? Why, why, why don't they show up in cars and look like humans? Well, here's why, because they can't pull it off. <laughs> right. <laughs> they look ridiculous when they try, and they look ten times scarier. I'd rather just have a UFO and have the short little gray doughy guy with the big eyes. Just look like that. We all get that that's what an alien looks like. And now that we've agreed on that, they can just look like that. Yes. Except for the Nordics which apparently are very tall and attractive, and now I'm confused again. Actually, there's an interesting... Uh, it was never published in a physical book, but there's an ebook out there. It's called The Extraterrestrial Compendium, and it's by this... Uh, he's a comic book artist named Pat Lee. And what he did is he basically put... Hmm. There, there are all these depictions of like different alien races that people have claimed to have interactions with. Is it's oh, and he drew yeah. them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard of that. I've heard yeah. of that book. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. It's it's really interesting. Well, the and and listen, the Greys were around a long time before the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I think it works the other right. way, where the movie was influenced by actual reports and not the other way around necessarily, or at least not primarily. But yeah, the, I, I don't. I don't think you can. You can go and just go. Oh yeah, people just plucking images. Uh, uh, Tom Bullard in in uh, Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind was the one saying that argument really does fall apart because you know in the 30s and the 40s, all those pulp magazines, science fiction stories, all those kind of things. You know, the aliens took on a wide range, but two of the most popular were the monster form and the robot form, and yet those are two you don't really hear about. You know? You don't uh, robot. You you might hear reptilian, and you might hear uh, something that looks a little like Bigfoot. But the sort of metal robot, you know, that comes after you, looking like the Tin Man from a uh, uh, Wizard of Oz, those don't no. get reported. That's I mean, not not in any number to be to, to be uh, compelling in terms of. We're all making up our UFO stories based on what we saw on the outer limits the other night. Right, which is the common argument with the Betty and Barney Hill abduction of 61. And right. I think what, the one thing that works against that where a lot of people get their counter arguments from is that while Betty and Barney Hill investigated this their experiences themselves... When did the book come out? 1966. And what people are going to point out is that, well, this happened in the past, so it could have been influenced by this or that, or in this, in their case, it was an episode of The Outer Limits where the aliens that they described did not look like the aliens on The Outer Limits at all. But one interesting aspect I'd like to know about the Greys and a possible origin for the Greys. We're going back to 1891 now. So, a lot of people uh, towards 
the you know we're 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 coming up in the 1900s they started thinking about what future man would look like and what man would look like in a million years the first man to to do that and uh he published a book called meta a tale of the future his name was kenneth fallingsby and here's the thing this book came to him while he was in a coma okay he he had a coma and he described like men of the future years into the future as quote appearing tiny they were tiny gray men with heads shaped like hot air balloons there you go but it came to him but that's great but he but but that's interesting he didn't make no. it up it came to him in an altered state of yes. consciousness well I'll tell you, in, the, in the book the supernatural they talk a lot about how these encounters may have something to do with human evolution right. And, and sort of almost we're coming back to ourselves in the past and urging ourselves forward, which is is a bit of a paradox. It wouldn't really wouldn't really survive the writer's room in the shows that I've been on, but okay, you know. They're not visionaries like us. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So Yeah, those those Yeah. Um to further to further this though. We, we go to H.G. Wells, and, and the first work that he ever published this idea in was a, a piece of satire called uh, The Man of the Year Million, and it was basically, yeah, what would man look like in a million years? And he believed that they would have large light bulb-shaped heads, small bodies, and would lack a nose, uh, mouth, and hair. Now, when he wrote, when he wrote the time machine, and 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 the time machine went into the future and saw the Morlocks or whatever those were, weren't they also described as like like sort of white, gray, hairless creatures of some sort? I forget exactly how they were. Uh, I believe so. I'm not exactly sure, but I, it does sound familiar. And uh, not just that, but in War of the Worlds, the Martians that he was inspired by, partially he said he was inspired by one evolution and to his own imagination and the actual martian beings they had larger heads to accommodate quote larger brains uh they had large eyes no nose no ears small mouths and he believed that they would communicate telepathically to uh eliminate misunderstanding hmm Oh, because uh, telepathic communication is more yeah. direct uh, and, and less likely to be misinterpreted. So let's go to our description here of, of, of our greys. They are small. They're three and a half to four feet tall. Again, they have large heads. They have, you know, long arms, three to four fingers, thin torso, uh, spindly legs, no ears, they kind of have nostril holes, uh, they have a slit for a mouth which doesn't appear to be functional, and of course the most frightening feature of them, the, those damn large ass black eyes, uh, which don't have a pupil, they're just black, but I think one in interesting fact that Mac notes is that on occasion, uh, one of the things that they are supposedly reported to do is they'll like what they call it is like a mind meld kind of situation. They'll the greys will put their head like practically on the abductee's head, and they believe this is like to gain yeah, yeah, yeah. access to their uh, mind. And 
sometimes they report that underneath that black lens, they can sometimes see an eye underneath it. Right, and I've 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 heard ones where um, people think they are wearing like sunglasses or goggles of some sort, and I've also heard ones of people saying when they look really closely at those eyes, they can almost see a honeycomb pattern underneath that imply almost like a, a fly's eyes, like there's there's many many mm-hmm. eyes. So, these beings, uh, they generally wear clothes. They wear, like, jumpsuits of some kind. They coveralls, like, these are NASA's finest from whatever planet they're from, if they are from another planet. And the taller ones are generally, like, uh, about a a foot to a foot and a half taller. Uh, And sometimes uh, the... They appear to be older looking, which I've always found interesting. And didn't Whitley Strieber say something about uh, one of the beings that he interacted with was like it kind of looked like it was a little older? Yeah, in, in a few cases they talk about yeah. wrinkles, but in the vast majority there's there's no there's no wrinkles on the face of the creature at all. Yeah, and one of the most fascinating aspects of these taller ones is that the and sometimes they're they're even taller than five feet sometimes they're six feet tall or or whatever is that these are the ones that have the lifelong relationship with the abductee and they always seem to have a gender that is opposite to them yeah there's a yeah. yeah that's the other thing that's what what else i haven't found what i have not found are people who have had, uh, well, okay, so, I mean, okay, uh, Strieber, Kripal, Huggins, heterosexual men having a heterosexual relationship with a female alien. What I have not heard are any stories about a homosexual man or woman having a homosexual experience or a heterosexual experience with a male or female alien, nor have I heard of a heterosexual male or female uh, having a homosexual experience with a male or female alien. So whatever the range of sexual experience is, if those stories are out there, we haven't heard them. And and the other thing we, we made a call out for on Twitter, and then I don't think we ever heard back, were where are the blind, deaf, or wheelchair-bound experiencers? Mm. And how do they describe their experience? Both being transported into a craft, or interacting with aliens, do they, do they, uh, and I bring it up because it, it, it's in the near-death experience canon. You will hear people who have been blind since birth who then have a near-death experience and experience mm-hmm. sight. Yeah, that's that's interesting. No, Nobody uh, did respond to us. You know, I mean, look, Whitley, if you're listening, Whitley Strieber should just call in. I, I, I'm serious. Uh, I, I, enough <laughs> bullshit. Look, d- 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 answer our questions. <laughs> abductee researchers just tell us we're only two men we only have so much time (laughs) we both have important it's only so much time that uh before we go missing because we got too close to the truth and uh uh, uh, (laughs) and we're never seen again um but yeah the this person that uh they're generally described as quote-unquote the leader for for all intents and purposes, but it's they, yeah, the one, the taller one who's followed them throughout their whole life, who they feel emotionally or psychically yeah. connected and, to. Yeah, and and there's even like elements of 
love in there, strangely. Like, they have a fondness for this person, but at the same time, they're also... They're, yes. They have resentment towards this because of the way in which the the, the process of how this occurs. So, I think what we're go- what we're gonna do here is we're gonna we're gonna touch on a couple of the atypical things, and then we're gonna get into your theory, Rich, because I you're you're gonna put it you're gonna uh. put everybody on notice. You've got this all figured out. So, it's been way oversold. <laughs> Not that good. <laughs> We've we've touched on some of the very interesting atypical aspects of this phenomenon, but there are others that need to be noted. Uh, one, sometimes the aliens make mistakes, and in particular, when they're bringing back the abductee, <laughs> sometimes they're returned miles away from where they were taken. Sometimes uh, when they're returned and they're put back in their bed, they're facing the wrong direction, or... Their clothes are on inside out. Sometimes there's actually pieces of clothing or jewelry missing for whatever reason. But there was one interesting thing in um, Abduction by John Mack. It was currently, I think the, the author was currently in press on it at the time, but he had said that there were two people that were simultaneously abducted from their cars, and when they were brought back, they were brought back to the wrong car. So they essentially, what they had to do is they had to re-abduct them and return them to the right cars. <laughs> You're kidding me. That is amazing. I've never heard that. <laughs> I haven't That's either. It was just some nuts. little tidbit in abduction, and now i got to find that story. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one. Uh, in uh, one of the women that he uh, interviewed toward the end of the book uh, described leaving a restaurant where she'd uh, just met a friend. This is like December 21st, 22nd. Her friend had given her a wrapped Christmas gift and had told her, oh, it's just some stuff I made, some fudge and some cookies and things like that and a fruitcake and, you know, just a little thing in Troy. So this beautifully wrapped package, puts it on the seat next to her, drives home, has an abduction experience. The next morning, wakes up in bed, feels sick, doesn't really remember what happened, goes out to the car, and the gift has been opened and then rewrapped <laughs> really poorly. That, <laughs> like, masking tape has now been used, like, it just looks like crap. It looks like something, you know, like, you know, my six-year-old would do. I, I don't have a six-year-old, but when my ten-year-old was six. <laughs> Anyway, uh, it just just a, a total disaster, and it was upon seeing that that she suddenly had it triggered the memory of being aboard the ship and watching those toad-like fingers uh, holding the at it and trying to figure out what the hell it was and starting to unwrap it. The memory came back. How creepy yeah, is that? Oh my God, that is, uh, and that's the thing is uh, one aspect to this that is fascinating is that when conscious recall occurs sometimes it's through some action that closely mirrors an action that occurred when they were abducted generally right and then it just unlocks this trend of thought or whatever and kind of like leads people to go and investigate their abductions and that is let's just say let's just get it out there right now do not go to the Grays for your Christmas wrapping needs. We're getting it out of the way now. Just don't do it. <laughs> a lot of good advice on this show. Don't look at the UFO 
and, and don't go yes, to them for yeah, gift just, wrapping. Just, right. just don't do it. So I touched a little bit on the, the healing aspects of the beings, and it was John Mack, he gave examples of people that had some maladies of some different kinds, and usually it's like minor wounds that are that are healed. Uh, my friends, um, Spencer and Ryan over at the What If podcast, they had this uh, guy named Mike on his program. He's a member of, I believe, MUFON. He's had lifelong experiences with greys and stuff like that. And he talked about being at this one conference for MUFON, and apparently a lot of people were abducted at this conference, which it mirrors this one group abduction scenario from, I believe, the 90s called the Coronado Group Abduction, where a bunch of UFO researchers were abducted on the same night. It, it was kind of a similar situation. He wasn't abducted, but what had happened was the Greys ended up administering a shot to his knee because he was supposed to have knee surgery. He had, I think he had torn something or so, uh, something like that, but it ended up healing. And, like, he went to his doctor. His doctor couldn't explain it. But there are these instances where things as extreme as childhood leukemia and muscular atrophy were somehow cured by these beings. Well, that's pretty friggin' incredible. It is. It's 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 a borderline miracle. So, um... It fits, yeah. fits into my theory. Fits into my theory. Sorry. It's gonna fit into the theory. Oh, awesome. The I, 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 I dig it. Unified theory of everything. Yes. One interesting aspect that Mac also noted was the idea that these beings may actually be drawn to emotional trauma of some kind. Like, like, like we've kind of touched on it, but oh, like, yeah. there are different types of trauma, sexual trauma, for instance, because he notes that, that in his uh, work that there is no cases of sexual trauma being how did he how did he say it? It, there's no cases where like yeah an abduction scenario was proposed in a case where sexual trauma had actually happened but in fact the other occurred people exactly the other went way around. trying to look yeah, yeah they tried to have their uh in other words these yeah. sexual traumatic cases you know and it leads them to an, ab an abduction scenario right okay. in, in in other words yeah it, like uh, some people again debunkers were like well these people a lot of them have been sexually abused as children and and so and and to avoid facing the you know the difficult painful memory of that sexual abuse they dissociate which people do during when physical violence is visit upon them often one will dissociate, sort of mentally go somewhere mm. else, and being well, well, what what happens is through some process that you know they never explain that an alien abduction scenario then is used as some weird sort of screen memory scab over over an actual real event that happened, which was the sexual abuse that someone suffered as a child, and what what they have found actually is quite the opposite that there there are experiencers who who have memories of being uh, sexually abused and then upon later examination discover that that actually was not possible and never happened and that, mm -hmm. but what actually did happen was an alien abduction so the memory of sexual abuse is actually uh, somehow a screen memory 
or, or a way the brain is interpreting what's happened to them, but what's actually happened is a deeper memory of alien abduction. Yeah. And one of the things that I struggled with was, was th- these people presented with trauma. So, right. and again, it, it, the, the, the child abuse angle is by no means universal, although in so, I mean, I mean it, it does exist, but it's not the universal unifier among all abductees. They've all experienced childhood sexual abuse. Not at all. But what struck Mac as a, as a psychologist was that these people were presenting with trauma and with signs of post-traumatic stress, but with no obvious source for that trauma. And then it was mm-hmm. in further examinations that abduction scenarios became the only clear indicator of a thing that could be causing this trauma in these people. And that's something that I should have noted to, to begin with this. Abductees are experiencing trauma, period. They are going through, they have mental problems, whether it's associated with PTSD or, you know, what have you. They have experienced a certain kind of trauma, and it uh, it always boils back to the dumb anal probe joke, which is just done to death by everybody. It's like, I asked you, because the anal probe joke essentially comes from Whitley Streeper. And it's in, like, I, I believe it's in his, like, first exp- experience that he talks about in the book. Right. It's not as common in UFO literature as it's made out to be. I haven't read it in anything else. You, I believe, said you came across it in the communion letters and in one yeah. person's... There was one case. And again, it, it was being violated with a instrument, not part of the alien's body. Although... Whitley does describe what happened to him as a rape, and so, right. and, and and certainly he's reported the you know feeling the emotional and psychological after effects of, of a rape, but even he was hesitant to call it that for twenty five years, and this is also a, a story that he he didn't use that word with his wife in describing it. He says you know I was yeah there was, I was probed you know there uh, there was an anal examination there was something and much much later he described it with the word rape which which again you know i i'm just trying to track his interpretation of his own experience and and how he felt about it and and then of course he you know in in some early books but certainly in, in this latest book talks about i mean it's weird you know the examination feeling violated but, but then describing other encounters that are sexual in nature, but also are not, you know, in the case of, of again, Kripal, Streber, and Huggins, they are not the initiators. And, and even though they're having a, you know, a male-female sexual interaction, they each describe it as they are being acted upon, and they are helpless, and they do not have a choice in the matter. They are more or less paralyzed, and they are being brought to stages of sexual arousal uh, against their and by these these intelligent energies. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so, but w- like, which is to say, the anal probe is not common. Right. So, like, cut it with the anal probe jokes, people. Just like let it go. Like, we all make the abduction jokes, but it's like, do you make fun of people who 
have mental health problems. I, I mean, we're coming to a, a, this time in, in, in our development where it's taken a lot more seriously, and, and, and this is something that should be taken a little bit more seriously. So, Well, I mean, it, 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 it's, it speaks to the larger issue of just how experiencers are, are treated and thought of in, uh, in our society in general, and I, I think it's with a, you know, a huge arm's distance because the stories are really scary. To believe what experiencers say is to open your mind to some very, very strange, scary material that if you believe even, not even believe, but if you just accept that they experienced what they say they experienced without trying to define it any further than that, those are scary experiences. I mean, if someone says, oh, I had this nightmare, you can imagine what that felt like. And if someone says, I had an experience that I don't think was a nightmare, but I still can't explain it. That's really scary, especially if you think it could happen to anybody. Then then you're really, yeah. and, and these are not experiences people are in control of. They are not the, the prime actor. They are being acted upon. That's legitimately frightening. And yet... Mm-hmm. If you spend a few minutes really, you know, reading up on it, it doesn't seem like lies and it doesn't seem like dreams or mistakes made by crazy people or, or, or any of that. So, so, something's going on. Maybe, uh, again, science could lend a hand and help us all figure it out. Right. And uh, one of the final kind of atypical aspects that I wanted to touch on. Um, and if, and if you want, and if you have others, you can totally jump in on it, but is that the abduction scenarios are often tied with past life memories. And I haven't come across a lot of this in the research, but like sometimes past life, uh, memories may unlock like maybe abduction scenarios and stuff like that. It, it wasn't something that Mac went into in great detail, but it's some it, it it does play some part in some you know abduction cases. So, I mean, based on my research, I'd say it's fairly rare. But but again, it doesn't sound like it, you know. Okay, I, I I'm not in a place where I'm gonna you know. I, I again, it, it's a mistake to go okay. The scenarios are this one thing, and then it follows these five stages, and then it's mm-hmm. over. Uh, clearly, people are experiencing a lot of things, and maybe only one or two things cross over. And a past life experience, okay, you know, I'll, I'll listen. I will tell you, in the letters, in the communion letters, um, I just began jotting down things that came up over and over again. And there's like a list of 12 things. Do you want to hear what yeah, those things are? It. And these are from... These experiences could not be more different, and yet bits and pieces came up over and over again. Um, like you brought up, uh, dreamlike quality to the encounter. That 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 sometimes it is described as a dream, and yet later is remembered as a very very real thing. But it's got to be called out. Um, two in these letters that were sent to Whitley Strieber, a lot of multiple witnesses, a lot of things were, uh, many family members involved, other people involved, not just, it was just me, I was alone, here's what happened, which I found interesting. Paralysis, except for the eyes, comes up a lot. Flu-like symptoms following the encounter. Did you did you come across a lot of this? Yeah, yeah, uh, that is definitely part of it, for sure. Okay, uh, number five, ball light phenomena inside the house and bright flashing lights inside the house, which you already talked mm-hmm. about, which seems to be in the earliest stages. Triangles, symbols of triangles. Yes, 
triangle-shaped craft. Scars on the body in the shape of a triangle. A lot of yeah, triangles. I actually stumbled across that bleeps. like years ago. Like one of the things that, uh, and I can't even remember where the hell I saw this. Uh, it was on some program, but uh, they had the the abductee had made a mention that they kept seeing triangles over and over and over again. They kept showing them triangles and or for whatever reason. Yeah, right. Um, nosebleeds. Yep. Are mentioned a lot in in the aftermath of an experience. Um, astral travel, out of body experiences, which plays into my theory. I'll get to later. Ten uh, abductions, running in families. Yes. Uh, people finding out that their parents and grandparents also had experiences, and that their children are now having experiences. That is very mm-hmm. common. A lot of good experiences. That what what would distinguish the communion letters from a lot of other books I've read it, are people characterizing these. Ex- not pleasurable, but ultimately rewarding in some weird way. Mm-hmm. And uh, knocking sounds, the, uh, something knocking on the house, a, the, the experience being sort of a, a, a preamble to the experience, uh, three sharp knocks, um, and then other phenomenon follows after that. So knocking sounds, which of course is deeply connected to the spiritualist movement. Uh, that's how you communicated with spirits back in the 1850s. Yes, uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to note that the original uh, channelers and mediums back way back in the 1800s, they weren't just talking to spirits, they were talking to people on other planets, which is, you know, very interesting. Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, have you read the Flourney book, uh, From Paris to, to Mars? No, but uh, from it's, Mars it's, it's one that I've, you know, it's on my to-be-read to pile. Oh, God, the ever-growing to-be-read oh, yeah. pile. <laughs> Never ends. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I, I think we've touched on, like, everything in, about, in the roundabout way that we have in this episode, and I think it's going to be amazing. So... Let's get to the theory, Rich. What's the theory? You've been teasing me with this thing for like a week. What is it? Oh, God. Okay, here it goes. Okay. It, it, and, and it has to do with, with the experiencer, okay? Here's what I think is going on. I think it covers a lot of this. And it, it covers alien abduction, quote-unquote, but a, a lot of, sort of spiritual experiences. The, here's the one thing you got to buy. Here's your one buy-in. Okay, like when you're when you're writing, you're writing a movie, you're writing a novel, you're writing a TV show. So th- th- it's like it's like there's a rule. You can only have one buy. It's like just make us buy one unrealistic thing, and then and then everything else has to sort of be realistic. Don't don't make us buy UFOs and vampires and alligator monsters. It's just like you choose one, and that's our buy. So the one buy in my theory is the astral body, the idea that that in an out of body experience consciousness can can separate from the physical body and travel and in that state consciousness can experience a lot more than our physical material Mm. world okay okay so that's my big buy so here's how it goes people who are prone to dissociative states okay maybe due to childhood illness maybe due to childhood abuse um they are more able to spontaneously leave their body, okay, and have an out-of-body experience, whether they are initiating it or whether it is initiated from someone else. But they've already had a little bit of practice in separating out their consciousness from what's happening to their physical Mm -hmm. body, okay? 
this makes these people more prone to abductions, near-death experiences, or a whole range of psychic phenomenon because if you are able to make that separation of mind from body, you are now open to those other planes, the planes of you know spirits of the dead, planes of experiencing uh, religious archetypes, uh, religious figures, and also possibly what present themselves as alien beings. But these all fall under the umbrella term of intelligent energies that exist outside our physical body. So a dissociative state can bring one, it's almost like the bridge step to the out-of-body experience. Now, sometimes, part two of the theory is that sometimes this ability to dissociate, to separate your consciousness, to inhabit your astral body and leave your physical body, sometimes it's initiated by a near-death experience or an abduction. Okay? So sometimes it's the other way around, where a person will be in a car accident, something like that, and their physical body will be acted upon in such a way that, that initiates a separation of their consciousness from their physical body. And I think that's how a lot of people experience NDEs, mm-hmm. uh, near-death experiences. But after this first trauma, more are now able to follow. It's almost as if the astral body has been loosened, mm-hmm. you know? And, and after that first loosening, that first jarring effect where it's jarred out of the body... A certain, it's almost like a membrane has been broken, and now it's a little bit easier to facilitate those experiences, either by the experiencer or by the outside intelligence that is uh, that is going to provoke this experience. So what's that? Some people can do it because they learn how to do it as kids, or something happened to them as a child that that has allowed for this. Some people, it's the experience itself. But once it happens. This is now a new state where one's consciousness can separate from the body. And and I think this is what leads to things like, well, I had a near-death experience, and after that I found that I was very psychic. And I could see into the future, or I could communicate telepathically, or I was getting information from, from uh, spirits of the dead. I think this, this sort of explains a lot of mediums who, who have a, a physical injury. They fall down, they hit their head. After that, discover that, oh my God, after that I could hear the voices of the dead, and I could hear the dead communicating with me, and I could see them. I think it's those, it's that physical injury that in some way or another jarred the astral body loose, and now allows it some facility of its mm-hmm. own. So that's the road I'm following. I think that these experiences may be partially physical, but are largely psychic events that are experienced by the astral body as it travels outside the body, floats up from the bedroom, through the roof, and then and then eventually, in some environment, encounters another exterior intelligence of some sort, and then returns to the body with that story. Part three of my theory is that an injury visited upon the astral body can manifest in the physical body. And that's why sometimes when the aliens do some sort of physical experiment. When the person wakes up, there's a scar on the body that is now manifested in the physical body. Puncture mark, a burn, a triangle, or the aftermath of a violent or consensual, in some cases, sexual experience. That's my theory. What do you think? It's interesting. I dig it. It's um, I'm, I'm going to have to wrap my head around it, but definitely hits on the aspects of the physical and and the not physical stuff and like 
one of the uh, one of the other most interesting things about the David Huggins story is that he has these paintings where he's taken through that uh, doorway in whatever room he's in, and on the other side he's shown a second body that looks exactly like his. So, is that like some kind of astral body or what? You know, like it, it, it's interesting and. I, 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 you might have just cracked this thing, Rich. I, I, I think you got something here. <laughs> I did it, right? I think I, I, I think I'm, I'm as close as anyone has gotten. And, and of course, the, but, but the big buy is, is a, a separation of consciousness from the physical body. And by the way, just realists out there, just because a living human body can experience the consciousness leaving the body and having it uh, and having an exterior experience that is legit you know that doesn't necessarily mean that consciousness exists after you die it may only be something that a living body can mm. do so for all you scientists out there who recoil at the thought of soul or an afterlife my theory can work for you too that's right rich Haddam, working for the scientists too suck on it <laughs> that's right baby go shinny up a rope <laughs> man rich this this has been great man so before we get out of here where could people find you your work is there anything else that is there anything that you've been working on that you want to plug have at it yeah yeah well I'll, I'll do it now. Uh, the new show is called Titans, and it will be available on the DC Universe platform, which you can find all over social media. And uh, Titans is, of course, the, uh, the uh, what 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 the animated world knows as the Teen Titans: Robin, Starfire, Beast Boy, and Raven. And uh, and various incarnations of those characters uh, may very well appear on the adult live-action streaming drama Titans actors uh in its <laughs> cast and it's pretty amazing I'm, I'm currently writing episode 12 we're shooting episode 10 production will uh, uh wrap up late spring early summer we'll be in post-production and the platform should debut sometime in the fall but uh follow social media and look for dc universe that's the name of the uh, platform so that's what i've been working on uh you can follow me on twitter at richard haddam and you'll hear about all this kind of stuff um, and, uh, that's all you need to know. Other than that, you know, go buy your own personal copy of the Mothman Prophecies. And if you like this kind of thing, check out a TV show I made, uh, 10 or 15 years back called Miracles, which sounds religious, but it's not. It's just really cool, interesting <laughs> <laughs> stories of psychic phenomenon and, and belief and the lack thereof. So don't worry. Ain't no one going to preach to you. And meanwhile, you get to watch a very young ski all rich cavort about on the television screen so check out miracles <laughs> i think you're gonna like it absolutely uh thanks man uh i appreciate you doing this so uh rob this has been so fun uh let me know when i can check my grade uh through the uh through the portal <laughs> and uh and ho hopefully my scholarship is intact <laughs> absolutely man absolutely <laughs> you'll get the report card no doubt oh thank god i gotta steal it before my parents find it dude <laughs> Special thanks to my guest, Rich Haddam. This was such a wonderful conversation. We really dove deep on the subject, so 
if you have not read the Mothman prophecies, have not seen the movie, have not checked out any of Rich's work, you really should. Go out there. He's done a lot of great things. He's written episodes and produced episodes of Supernatural, Grimm, and so many other things. Uh, Definitely go check out Miracles. It'll make him happy. It'll make his day. And then go tell him about it. You can find the Our Strange Guys podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, and most podcast apps. If you'd like to get in contact with me, you can email the show at ourstrangeskies at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Our Strange Skies. Check out our Facebook group, too, in Grey We Trust, a group for those that look up into Our Strange Skies. We have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash ourstrangeskies. Rewards include shout-outs, early access to the regular episodes, and monthly bonus episodes called Their Strange Skies, where we look into the UFO incidents of other countries. We also have a Tee Public store. If you're wanting to get some merch, and why wouldn't you want to emblazon our logo on your chest? Or uh, there's so many other things that you can put it on. A hoodie, a notebook, a phone case, whatever. Check it on out. It's tpublic.com slash user slash Our Strange Skies. Take you right over there. And we have designs by, of course, the great Desdemona over there. And I will be uploading some more soon, so uh, definitely keep that in mind. Special thanks, as always, to the Ossic and the great work that they're doing right now on getting Roswell ready. And we're going to kill it with that. Our logo was designed by Tessa Brown, and our theme song was composed by Shane Yoder over at PutThemInTheSong.com. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies. In Grey We Trust. Duvid Media.